Justice for Animals, Practical Progress Through Philosophical Theory. Animals suffer injustice at our hands through cruelties of the factory farming industry, poaching and trophy hunting, assaults on the habitats of many creatures, and innumerable other instances of cruelty and neglect. Human domination is everywhere. In the skies, where migratory birds die in large numbers from air pollution, in the seas, where marine mammals die from ingesting plastic, and obviously on the land, where the habitats of so many large mammals have been destroyed almost beyond repair. Addressing these large problems requires dedicated work and effort. But it also requires a good normative theory. And I will argue that an approach based on my version of the capabilities approach is the one we need, and I'll show how it directs our efforts better than rival approaches. Section one, justice as thwarted striving. What is injustice? Here are some stories that will yield an intuitive account. My examples will be only the smallest sample of what can befall an animal and only a sampling of animal kinds. And I will pair two descriptions, one of the animal going about its own life, flourishing, and another of the same animal brought to grief through wrongful treatment. Because non-human animals are so often treated as mere things, not individual sentient beings, and because one aspect of the thing-like treatment of animals has been the refusal of a proper name, scientists today insist on giving proper names to the individual animals they study. I follow this practice here, taking names from both fact and fiction. Let me then introduce you to three particular animals. Virginia is a sensitive female elephant in Kenya, described and named by elephant scientist Joyce Poole in her memoir, Coming of Age with Elephants. Hal Whitehead is a great whale scientist, especially focused on whale song. So I've given his name to a humpback whale who is proficient at singing, one of a group that I observed while whale watching in a boat near the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. No fictional pig is more imperious and more striking than Empress of Blandings, a wonderful, noble black Berkshire sow in superb condition who wins many medals, according to the novels of novelist P.G. Woodhouse. So the mother elephant, Virginia's story. Virginia has large amber eyes. When she hears music she likes, she stands very still and her eyes droop. Joyce Poole spends her days with the whole matriarchal group of elephants and she finds that Virginia, smaller than the older matriarch Victoria, has a particular fondness for Joyce's singing. Amazing Grace is her favorite. Often, however, Virginia is on the move, covering huge tracts of grassland, her feet padding noiselessly across the floor of Kenya's Amboseli Park. 
Her new baby elephant walks beneath her belly, sheltered by that enormous maternal frame. Elephants are wonderful mothers, highly protective of their young and even known to sacrifice their lives to save young elephants from danger. Now, consider something that might happen to Virginia that often does happen. Virginia lies on her side, dead, her tusks and trunk hacked off by a machete, her face a bloody red hole. The ivory trade flourishes despite many attempts to curb it, and the market for animal trophies, such as tails and trunks, flourishes with few impediments. It's not even illegal to import such trophies into the United States. The other females gather around her and try vainly to lift her body with their trunks. Eventually, giving up the effort, they sprinkle earth and grass upon her body. The baby elephant is missing, taken very likely to sell to some commercial zoo very likely in the United States, that's not too particular about origins. The humpbacked whale, Hal's story. Our small whale watching boat cuts through the choppy surf off of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. In the distance, several pods of humpback whales appear breaching and slapping their tails and flukes. Their huge backs gleam in the sun. One of them is Hal. Over the boat's motor, we hear the whales singing. The patterns of sound too complex for our ears to chart them, although we know that humpback whale song has a complicated syntactic structure, an enormous variety, and is constantly changing, sometimes apparently out of sheer fashion and love of novelty, a variant that originates here may make its way to Hawaii in a year's time as whales imitate one another. The sound is beautiful to us and profoundly mysterious. Now, look at a different possible how. Washed up, dead, on a beach in the Philippines, his once healthy frame is emaciated. Inside, Researchers find 88 pounds of plastic trash, including bags, cups, and other single-use items. Another whale similarly choked on plastic was found to contain within the trash a pair of flip-flops. Hal has starved to death. Plastic gives whales a sensation of fullness, but of course it doesn't really nourish. Eventually, there's no room for real food to enter. Some of the plastic in Hal's stomach has been there so long that it is calcified, turned into a, like a plastic brick. He will not sing again. The Sow, the story of Empress of Blandings. Empress of Blandings is a noble black Berkshire sow of enormous size. Cared for as a favorite companion on the estate of Blanding's castle, she loves her trough, where appetizing food is always offered her by her human caretaker, Cyril Wellbeloved. 
When well-beloved has to go to jail for a short time for drunken and disorderly conduct. However, she begins to pine and loses her appetite. Her human family, especially the very pig-oriented Lord Emsworth, worries helplessly about her well-being, tempting her with various treats, but in vain. But by a stroke of good fortune, James Belford turns up at landings, and his skill in hog-calling learned during a time spent working on a farm in Nebraska brings the empress back to her usual good spirits. She eats with gusto, making, and now I'll quote from the novel, a sort of gulpy, gurgly, plobby, squishy, wafflesome sound that delights Lord Emsworth. Shortly thereafter, she takes her first medal at the 87th Shropshire Agricultural Show in the Fat Pigs class. Now, imagine a different life for the Empress. Instead of flourishing among the kindly people and the fostering surroundings of Blanding's Castle and the gentle world of P.G. Woodhouse, where all beings are treated gently with love and humor, the Empress has had the bad fate to be living on a hog farm in Iowa in the 21st century. Now newly pregnant, she's been thrust into a gestation crate, a narrow metal enclosure the size of her body, with no bedding, floored with slats of concrete or metal to allow waste to descend into what they call sewage lagoons below. She cannot walk or turn around, and she can't even lie down. No kind hog caller speaks to her. No pig-loving humans admire and love her. No other pigs or farm animals greet her. She's just a thing, a breeding machine. Most of the approximately six million sows in the United States are on factory farms, and these crates are used in most states though they are banned in nine states and several countries. Sows in gestation crates show loss of muscle and bone mass from lack of exercise. They exhibit behaviors such as bar biting and tongue rolling, indicative of boredom and frustration. One type of frustration is being forced to defecate where they live because actually pigs are very clean animals and they choose to defecate very far from where they sleep and eat. Another is deprivation of all society, for pigs are highly intelligent and social animals, though the uh, people on the factory farms try to justify the use of crates on the grounds that sows not confined will fight with one another. This specious argument simply assumes that the sows could not possibly be given enough space to come and go and move as they choose. In a poignant allusion to the fact that pigs are not mere things, but have a characteristic form of life, the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production recommended in the year 2008, quote, the phase out within 10 years of all intensive confinement systems that restrict natural movement and normal behaviors including swine gestation crates. Well, 13 years later, there's no sign of this happening. These stories summon us, I think, 
to both compassion and what I have repeatedly called transition anger, which is a, a kind of anger that is not simply backward-looking and retributive, but forward-looking and corrective. We feel this is outrageous. It should not happen going forward. But why do we react this way? What do the three stories have in common? Well, first, in all three cases, we're aware that we're dealing with a sentient being, a creature who feels pain, who perceives, who has its own perspective on the world. Second, the creature is trying to live and to live a life characteristic of an animal of that kind. This is what the good stories bring out, describing a flourishing life for each kind of animal. Third, the animal's striving has been thwarted, and it has been thwarted by conduct that is either deliberate or negligent. These are, for me, the basic intuitive ingredients of injustice, the wrongful thwarting of a sentient being's striving. So now section two, three flawed approaches. Let me now examine three prominent philosophical approaches that have been directing practical and legal efforts to combat injustice toward animals. I confine myself here to Western philosophy, and I don't delve back very far into that history, where late Platonism in the works of Porphyry and Plutarch make striking contributions to thinking about animal rights. As for non-Western thought, I note that Indian, Buddhist, and Hindu philosophy both have rich resources for defending the rights of animals. And an Indian court has very recently declared animals to be persons under Article 21 of the Indian Constitution, which makes it illegal to deprive a person of life or liberty without due process of law. But back to the West. The first flawed approach is one that I call the so-like-us approach. It's based on the traditional idea of a scala naturae, a ladder of nature with humans securely at the top. Users of this approach, in particular legal thinker Stephen Wise and his non-human rights project, argue that a group of creatures who seem to them to be very like humans in intelligence especially great apes, but they also now include whales and elephants, should count as persons in law and should receive various protections on the grounds of their likeness to humans. It was used recently in the US to argue, although unsuccessfully, for the transfer of a group of apes from an experimental facility to an animal sanctuary. There are many flaws in this approach, First, it offers nothing for the sufferings of so many creatures who are deemed to be not like us. Indeed, by offering similarity to humans as the decisive reason for good treatment, it positively discourages attention to the predicaments of other animals. Second, it is deeply flawed empirically and lacking in real curiosity, not willing to investigate the manifold forms of intelligence and cognitive complexity in the animal world. Intelligence and cognitive complexity take manifold forms in our world, and creatures from the octopus and many marine creatures to birds, amazingly versatile, 
and long underestimated, have many different types of intelligence, some of which we humans do not possess. Birds can navigate over huge distances by picking up magnetic fields, a sensory apparatus we totally lack. Dolphins can determine what is inside an object that they approach by their sensory capacity for what's called echolocation, which is to say using uh, echoes, bouncing off the object to discern its inside, the, the reverberations that come back. A surprising example of echolocation, a captive dolphin became aware that her trainer was pregnant through echolocation even before the trainer herself was aware of her pregnancy. She made a kind of sign for baby and so forth, and, and the trainer actually learned something from that. So nature does not present a ladder. It presents instead amazing horizontal variety, each creature having the capacities suited to its ecological niche and its form of life. Third, this approach values animals for the wrong reasons, because of us, not because of them. It's narcissistic and complacent, first assuming our first place value, and then conceding that, well, some few other creatures manage to attain almost our value by likeness. But each animal's goals are its own, and each animal's life is its own. The second approach is the utilitarian approach, which began with Jeremy Bentham's clarion call to concern in a famous long footnote in his introduction to the principles of morals and legislation, 1789. Bentham's overall view holds that the only good thing is pleasure and the only bad thing is pain. In this footnote, he insists that animals are just as vulnerable to pain and suffering as humans are, and he says that the day will come when our harsh domination over animals will seem just as awful as the slave trade now does, says he, to right-thinking people, uh, of course, somewhat exaggerating, I think, the degree to which British thought had progressed by that time, and totally ignoring the atrocities in America. Just as the color of a person's skin should not be a reason for differentially bad treatment, Bentham says, so too the, quote, velocity of the skin and the curvature of the os sacrum, end quote, should not be a reason for the brutal oppression of animals. Bentham followed this up with other writings denouncing hunting and fishing for sport, although he did still think it was permissible to kill animals for food, so long as it was done painlessly. Bentham's great student, John Stuart Mill, followed his lead, both writing about the rights of animals and leaving all his money to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Today, utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer, their philosophical heir, has been a leader in calling for the abolition of cruel practices toward animals. This approach is a great deal better, and it does zero in on a key issue in our exploitation of animals, pain. But it flattens the world too much. Animals do need freedom from pain, but they also need the ability to move around freely, to play, to choose their own paths through the world, 
to enjoy social relationships. Furthermore, sometimes animals who have never been exposed to these good things don't even feel pain when they're without them. They form what economists call adaptive preferences. So, as in the human case, the utilitarian criterion can be an ally of an unjust status quo. Another problem is that the utilitarian goal is a state, pleasure, or in Singer's version, satisfaction of preferences. So the value of agency is neglected. People don't just want to end up in a state of satisfaction. They want to strive and to attain whatever they attain by their own efforts. So too with the other animals. And finally, what utilitarianism recommends is not individual-focused enough. The utilitarian goal is either the greatest total pleasure or the greatest average pleasure, depending on what version we use. So complicated empirical calculations are required in order to balance the pleasure of meat-eating against the pain of the animals who are killed. And there's no guarantee at all that the animal protective result will actually turn out superior. The condition of those at the bottom of society's ladder does not have any intrinsic importance in utilitarianism, which is a notorious problem for utilitarianism generally. Third is the Kantian approach of philosopher Christine Korsgaard's important recent book, Fellow Creatures. This approach does better still, and it's a magnificent book, I must say, developing an attractive account of what it is to treat an animal as an end rather than a means. In many important respects, its practical recommendations dovetail with my own. Korsgaard diverges from Kant, who held that animals are just property that we may use as we please, and she develops a promising approach from both Kantian and Aristotelian materials. But Korsgaard clings too much to Kant to satisfy me. She insists that humans are the only creatures capable of normative thinking and self-direction, and that for this reason, the other creatures can only be what she calls passive citizens, not active participants in indicating what justice is for them. I think we should criticize this approach both empirically and normatively. Human ethical capacities are part of our animal heritage, and we share them to a greater or lesser degree with many other animals. Moreover, it doesn't make normative sense to me to conclude that a creature not capable of Kant's sort of ethical thought cannot be an active citizen. Creatures of many kinds, including human children and people with cognitive disabilities, lack the Kantian moral abilities, and yet we consider them active citizens, allowing their preferences to be heard when laws are made, even though in many circumstances they will have to be represented by a guardian. Well, why not say the same thing about animals? Now, section three, the capabilities approach, striving and forms of life. So let's now turn to my own version of the capabilities approach. As an approach to justice in the human world, it holds that a minimally just society will provide each and every citizen with the threshold level of 10 
significant capabilities. Capabilities are substantive opportunities for choice, not just inner skills or abstract possibilities. As an approach to justice for other animals, my approach holds that all creatures who are sentient, that is, all who have an internal subjectivity, a point of view on the world, a category that includes all vertebrates and some invertebrates, ought to have the opportunity for a flourishing life in accordance with the characteristic life form of that species. So now, <clears throat> let me elaborate. So, subsection A, a virtual constitution. In the human case, the capabilities approach supplies a template for constitution making. The list has both content and a tentative threshold for each item. A nation aiming at minimal justice can consult it and also consult its own particular environment and history and frame its own list with more locally specific accounts of each of the major capabilities on the list. For two reasons, this approach to the other animals is not possible at present. First, the other animals often roam across national borders or occupy regions of air and sea that are not the property of any single nation. So a national constitution is not sufficient to protect migratory species. Second, there is not anything like sufficient political will in most of the nations of the world to enact such protections anytime soon. Right now, therefore, the capabilities approach aims to supply a virtual constitution to which nations, states, and regions may look in trying to improve or newly frame their animal protective laws. It is my hope that over time, this virtual constitution may increasingly become the object of what John Rawls calls an overlapping consensus, both within each nation and across national boundaries. This will take time and work. So too is the task of framing and protecting human rights. Still, this flexible approach permits nations to stride boldly ahead without waiting to get a global consensus. The basic goal is that all animals should have the opportunity to live lives compatible with their type of dignity and striving up to a reasonable threshold level of protection and with exceptions for self-defense and defense of others. Subsection two, lists and lives. Ideally, we should learn enough to make a separate list for each type of animal, putting on the list the things that matter most when it comes to survival and flourishing life. In effect, the list is really made by the animals themselves as they express their deepest and most urgent concerns as they try to live. The people who can be trusted to record the unheard voices of animals are people who have lived with a given type of animal for years and with great love and sensitivity. Ideally, there should be a group of such people for each species since any individual is fallible. These guardians and listeners should get to know individual animals within the species in all their variety and know the obstacles that each creature faces and what interventions prove helpful. This means a huge number of different lists. 
However, I believe that if we focus on the large general rubrics of the capabilities list for humans, as it exists now, it offers good guidance as a starting point in virtually all cases. That should come as no surprise, since the capabilities list captures, in effect, the shared terrain of vulnerable, striving animality that each species inhabits in its own way. All strive for life, for health, for bodily integrity, for the opportunity to use whatever senses, imagination, and thought are characteristic of each type of creature. Practical reason sounds at first too human to be a good guide, but really it isn't. All creatures want the opportunity to make some key choices about how their lives will go, to be the makers of plans and choices. Affiliation is critical for all animals, though its types vary greatly. All also seek to relate well to the larger world of nature around them, and this usually includes members of other species. Play and fun are not peculiar to humans, as researchers increasingly understand, but key aspects of animal sociability. And all animals certainly seek types of control over their material and social environment. If there are other large rubrics pertinent to animal lives that the human list has not included, I can't think of them now, but would be totally open to expanding the large rubrics of the list if any should be brought forward. Now, people might worry that such a list is bound to be too anthropomorphic, verging on some of the errors of the so-like-us approach. I understand this charge, but I think it's mistaken. The list was made up not by thinking of what is distinctively human, but by thinking in very general and, so to speak, horizontal terms about vulnerable and striving humanity all over the world, a topic that actually Aristotle already addressed in the small work on which I wrote my doctoral dissertation in 1975, namely the treatise on the motion of animals. In that work, he proposes what he calls a common explanation for why and how all animals, of course, including humans, move through the world to get the things they need, allowing for significant variations at the specific level, but insisting that at a general level, we find a common pattern. I think so, too, though we must always be on our guard against obtuseness and self-privileging perception. Sometimes the common explanation will include items within the finer rubrics of the human list that appear at first blush not to matter so much to the lives of animals. Consider, for example, freedom of association and freedom of speech. Well, what are most zoos but means of denying freedom of association to the animals in the cages? As for speech, animals express what they need and want in many ways, often very sophisticated, often possessing even syntactic complexity. And I should say that's not just whales. It's actually chickadees have a syntax and many, many animals that we wouldn't have guessed. Under formal US law, freedom of speech pertains to many forms of expressive activity, not just to words that are uttered or written. 
Why then should this legal category not be thought suitable to include the ways animals speak? It certainly could if only animals had legal standing in the first place. It's not that they don't speak. It's just that we humans do not listen. Animals are not free to speak, however, when their complaints are ignored, when information about conditions in the factory farming industry are systematically screened from public view, when even human allies of the afflicted pigs and chickens are prevented from by what are called ag-gag laws, that is, laws forbidding reporting, from describing those conditions. Freedom of speech is hugely pertinent to animals, and it's important for exactly the reasons John Stuart Mill, who was a defender of animal rights, gave when he defended free speech in his work on liberty. Free speech gives us information we need to make our society better, it challenges complacency and smugness. It brings forward unfashionable positions that deserve a fair hearing. Some finer rubrics of the human list matter for animals in a slightly different way. Some of the specific subcategories seem really inappropriate to animals, like freedom of the press or political participation. However, let's pause and think again. Animals do not write newspaper articles or read them, but the free circulation of information about their predicaments is a crucial part of their good in this world where humans dominate all animal lives. Just as the Great Famine in China was not even known to Mao because of the absence of a free press in the China of that time, so too Restrictions that are imposed by ag-gag laws prevent information about animal suffering from getting out into the public domain where action can actually be taken. And they have been, in some states, successfully challenged on First Amendment grounds. To be sure, the articles and the books will have to be written by humans, and the videos will have to be photographed by humans, but they matter for and in the lives of the animals whose voices of complaint they record, and whose intolerable conditions they describe. Much the same is true of political participation. Most animals, though of course usually political enough within their own group, have little interest in political participation in the human-dominated world, and they're unaware of elections, assemblies, and offices. Nonetheless, what happens there? matters hugely for them. In the human world, politics determines the rights and privileges of all denizens of a given place and makes crucial decisions about matters of welfare, habitat, open space, and so on. So it matters that animals have a political say, which means, I believe, legal standing and legal representation. Right now, we allow surrogate representation for humans with cognitive disabilities, so this proposal really doesn't involve anything very surprising. Creatures who live in a place should have a say in how that place is configured and how they can live in it. At the level of the finer concrete rubrics of the list, there will also be surprising divergences. 
and we should always be open to surprise and learning. So each kind of animal has its own form of social organization, without which they're bereft, and even of sense perception. Some animals, as I mentioned, have senses that we totally lack, which are important to its flourishing life, echolocation, navigation by magnetic fields. And usually, the senses that we do have are realized differently in animal lives, different types of hearing, sight, and perhaps especially of smell. Only painstaking and loving study will show what should be said. Subsection C, fertile functionings, corrosive disadvantages. And here I'm using terms that were actually invented by Joe Wolfe and Avner de Chalit in a book that they, they wrote called Disadvantage about the capabilities approach. Because the approach I envisage is specific to each type of animal life, its demands are many and heterogeneous. But within each case and across many cases, there are likely to be capabilities that are particularly what I would call fertile, promoting good life across the board, and capability failures that are particularly corrosive, undermining good life across the board. For all animals, for example, subjection to arbitrary human violence is a corrosive disadvantage, whether it takes the form of whales' vulnerability to harpooning, elephants' vulnerability to poaching, female pigs' confinement in those gestation crates, or a companion dog's vulnerability to a so-called owner's cruelty and neglect. Another corrosive disadvantage across the board is environmental pollution, which causes lethal conditions, whether of air or water, for many species, including our own, and depletes habitats. So the opposite of these ills, bans on cruel practices and a dedication to environmental cleanup, prove fertile, enhancing capabilities across the board for many animals. Subsection D, species members are individuals. So far, I've spoken of a list for each type of animal. But for animals as for humans, each individual creature should be treated as an end. And animals are individuals not just numerically, meaning that each one matters, but also qualitatively. Each species member is subtly different from every other. People who live with companion animals know that the personalities and preferences of one dog or one cat are not necessarily good for all. They're highly individual. We usually fail to notice this variety in the case of animals with whom we do not live, but scientists who do live with a given species of animal recognize and emphasize these differences. Each baboon, each elephant, is a member of baboon or elephant society, but each individual has a unique way of inhabiting that world. So too with every type of animal that we've been able to study carefully. But if each individual is both separate from others, that is having its own life to live, not anyone else's, and qualitatively different in some ways from others, isn't it maybe a mistake to frame the list in terms of a species form of life? Isn't that to deny each animal's uniqueness? 
isn't it obtuse and even maybe objectifying to speak of the dolphin or the dolphin form of life, rather than to create a separate story and a separate list for each and every individual dolphin. For example, for fungi, the beloved dolphin in Dingle Bay off the coast of Ireland, whose disappearance in October 2020 has caused worldwide distress. The inhabitants of Dingle came to know fungi well over the decades as a dolphin with a unique personality, quirky, oddly solitary for a dolphin, atypically social toward humans. Why wouldn't fungi's uniqueness be wiped out by an approach based on the dolphin species? All law is general, but good law is based on a knowledge of many particulars and can be revised when new particulars come to light. Moreover, the list is a list of capabilities, that is, opportunities, not mandatory functions. The opportunities it creates can be used by different creatures in many different ways, or not used at all if the animal doesn't want to use them. Capabilities are entitlements, a type of rights. People typically do not think that a list of human rights reduces all humans to a cookie-cutter model. They're spaces within which varied individuals are free to choose. I think it's the same story for each type of animal. We study communities belonging to a given species, and species, as I would note, is a rough term for what's common to various populations, not a metaphysical entity apart from individuals, we frame a list. Then the qualitatively different species members can use those entitlements each in their own ways. Fungi is different from every other dolphin, but the capabilities that protect dolphins in general will also protect him and be used by him in his unique way. He doesn't have to socialize with a large pod of dolphins if he doesn't want to. He's perfectly free to hang around the coast and be a solitary. And if one day he does decide to go off in search of a larger pod, he's protected in that choice too. That's actually one possibility for what has happened to Fungi, although given his relatively advanced age, death is another unfortunate possibility. That's how the approach respects individual creatures, by creating protected spaces for them to seek flourishing, each in their own way. Through future judicial specification, the list will get more refined. And if people who live with and care about that type of animal were to protest that the list is incomplete or mistaken, it can always be changed. One more point. One part of the goal will also include interspecies relationships. There are some animals whose lives are pretty much wrapped up in the life of their kind. Dolphins and elephants do not seem to rely very much on robust relationships with other species as a crucial element in their good, although that's not to say that a friendship across the species barrier might not arise under suitable conditions. But there are other animals whose forms of life are far more relational across the species barrier. Dogs, cats, many horses, farm animals who are not tortured, and certain types of birds, particularly parrots. 
these animals cultivate relationships with one another, and they all seem to seek and even perhaps to need relationships with humans. So this simply gets built into the list we would make for each type of creature as a desideratum. Reliance on a species norm does not imprison a creature within its own species. Section four, practical implications. In a way, the practical applications distinctive to this approach are just obvious. Show respect to all forms of life, not just those that look like us. Don't just focus on pain, but look at the whole form of life. Many zoos don't inflict pain, but they do thwart, in many cases, the animal's characteristic form of life, especially its social life. And don't treat animals as passive recipients of a handout, but allow their intelligence, strivings, and expressions of preference to determine the course of legal action. To return to my three stories, my approach would mean strenuous efforts worldwide to stop poaching and the abduction of young animals. It would mean an end to the whole factory farm industry in the short term, and in the long term, an end to our reliance on killing animals for meat in favor, perhaps, of artificial meat if people can't enjoy a plant-based diet, and perhaps even real meat, so-called, grown from stem cells without killing. In Hal's case, it would mean a concerted effort on the part of all humanity to reform our heedless behavior with regard to single-use plastic and aggressive cleanups to remove the plastic that is already out there. I should say this bottle that's here is not single-use plastic. It's a re reusable, uh, hard plastic bottle. I end this lecture with just one detailed example of legal implementation of the spirit of my approach. A happy harbinger of what may be a new era in law in the form of a remarkable 2016 opinion by the US Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in a case called Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, versus Pritzker. The Pritzker was a Penny Pritzker who was then Secretary of Commerce, not the governor of Illinois. The US Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled that the US Navy violated the law in seeking to continue a sonar program that impacted the behavior of whales. To some extent, this opinion is a technical exercise in statutory interpretation of a law, which is a very interesting law, called the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which forbids not only taking, which means killing, but also harassing marine mammals. And harassing is spelled out in a way that the court uh, will, will get to in a minute. The court says the fact that a program has negligible impact on marine mammals does not exempt it from a separate statutory requirement, namely that it establish means of, quote, effecting the least practicable adverse impact on marine mammal species. And harassment, as I say, had been already defined as impeding characteristic animal behaviors. What is significant and fascinating is that the argument relies heavily on a consideration of whale capabilities that the program disrupts. And I'll quote, effects from exposures below 180 decibels can cause short-term disruption or abandonment 
of natural behavior patterns. These behavioral disruptions can cause affected marine mammals to stop communicating with each other, to flee or avoid an insonified area, to cease foraging for food, to separate from the rest of their species, their calves, and to interrupt mating. LFA sonar can also cause heightened stress responses for marine mammals. Such behavioral disruptions can force marine mammals to make trade-offs like delaying migration, delaying reproduction, reducing growth, or migrating with reduced energy reserves." End of quote. This opinion doesn't give whales standing under law. They don't need to. No such radical move is necessary to reach the clear result that the Navy program is unacceptable. Because the whales did not have standing, they had to depend on the luck of having protection through the Marine Mammal Protection Act, a law made by human legislators, but with some real concern for the interests of whales. And they also had to depend on this NGO, the Natural, Natural Resources Defense Council, to bring the legal action when the law was not being fully enforced. The whales also had to depend on judges who read the law imaginatively, taking very seriously a set of obstructions to the whale's form of life that did not involve the infliction of pain. The opinion, written for a unanimous three-judge panel by Judge Ronald Gould, who sits in and has long lived in the state of Washington, where whale watching is a common pastime, concluded that obstructing a characteristic form of life activity, even without pain, is what is called an adverse impact. I imagine this judge, I don't know much about him, but I know he has lived in Washington most of his life, as someone who has really looked at whales with curiosity and even with wonder. But whether he or his clerks have really gone out whale watching, the opinion displays ethical and imaginative attunement of a type increasingly seen, at least in coastal areas of the US, perhaps in the Seattle area above all. It sees whales as complex beings with an active form of life, that includes emotional well-being, affiliation, free movement, and free reproduction. In short, a variety of species-specific forms of active agency. The opinion goes well beyond Jeremy Bentham, and it also steers clear of the so-like-us approach, nor, like the Kantian approach, does it view whales merely as passive citizens. It's a harbinger, it is to be hoped, of a new era in the law of animal welfare and of justice towards striving animals. Thank you very much.